This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind-the-scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss. Show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. For the last few weeks, we've been revisiting clips from old, awesome episodes that I thought deserved revisiting. And today is the last episode in that series, for now at least, with my dear friend, my ex-boyfriend, a business owner and badass army captain, Jesse Summer. I had invited Jesse onto the show right after he came back from a seven-month stint in Afghanistan, uh, which happened to coincide with COVID happening. So he came back to the States to a very different world. And that was pretty fascinating. Um, And I had him on because I just wanted to see how he was doing. And I knew he'd always have some good stories. And it ended up being really applicable to a lot of the things that I find entrepreneurs are dealing with. He first starts by sharing about the first five times that he jumped out of a plane in army ranger school and how terrifying each of those five jumps were. I mean, literally risking his life, but also almost dying in every single one. Uh, Managing to keep going back. I don't know how he did that. But also that that was 55 jumps ago. He's jumped out of a plane now over 55 times. And some of the lessons that he learned about repetition in the face of fear. And it's just so powerful to hear this story because even though it's a really different kind of fear than maybe what you and I are experiencing every day. Is it really? I mean, as an entrepreneur, I am encountering opportunities to do things that scare the shit out of me all the time. And I do them for the most part because over the years, I have had the same experience. I have done a lot of things that really scare me And I can't even really remember how I felt scared of them now because I've done them so many times. Public speaking is the most obvious example of this, right? Like the first time that I had to stand up in a BNI room and give my 30-second pitch, I was literally shaking, like so terrified and embarrassed and um, just so scared to mess up. Couldn't listen to what anyone else was saying, just really in my own head. And it wasn't just the first time I did it. It was how I felt for years, really, having to do that. It got better, but it still was really nerve-wracking. And then the first time, of course, or the first dozen times that I got in front of a room and gave a speech, dealing with all the floods of fears. What if I mess up? What if I sound like an idiot? You know, who am I? Imposter syndrome. Just lots of fears that stop people from doing that kind of work. And I did it anyway, because I knew that if I could just make myself do it, it would get better and that I would get better at it. And it is, it is hard to even access that visceral fear that I used to feel because I've done it so many times. I don't have it as much anymore. I still get that rush, um, but it's a little more of an excitement rush than it is of dreaded fear. (laughs) Like, I do not want to do this. I want to throw up fear. It doesn't, it's not like that anymore. It's, it's definitely adrenaline. Um, And there might be some butterflies, but generally speaking, um, it's kind of gone away. And 
it's gone away because of repetition. And I think that's just such an important lesson to learn and and to cultivate in ourselves as entrepreneurs because doing new things kind of is inherently scary. And if we let ourselves not do them because we are scared, then we are missing out on so many potential opportunities for ourselves. I use public speaking as the example because it's the most obvious example, but I've had plenty of fears of sending out an email. The first email I sent out to my list, the first blog post, the first couple dozen blog posts I sent out, the first couple dozen emails I sent out, actually maybe the first couple hundred emails I sent out. Very scared of being judged, of people I don't know, thinking I was bothering them, thinking, who is this chick to write this? Or I don't know, whatever I was scared of. Um, Scared to put my face out there. Uh, If you watched my TEDx talk, you know that it was a really big decision to put my face on my book. And before that, I really didn't have photos of myself anywhere online. And you'd probably think that was funny now, because if you go to my website or go online, it's like, my face everywhere. But that's just it. The repetition, once again, the repetition of putting it out there. And sometimes it doesn't go well. I've had my face out there plenty of times where people made horrible comments, mostly on Facebook ads, but still, you know, people, strangers feel like it's okay to be mean online when they're anonymous. But it doesn't really get worse than that. Putting yourself out there feels really scary when you haven't really done it. But it doesn't really get worse than strangers making rude comments. And once you've had enough strangers making rude comments, that's kind of repetition too. It's repetitive exposure to the worst thing that can happen. And you kind of get used to it and just realize it's not really a big deal. And that doesn't just help you with whatever that fearful task at hand is. It helps you with trying things that are new and scary in general. Remember the next time that you're about to do something that is new and scary, that you've done many new and scary things before, and sometimes the worst thing happened and it still didn't matter. So I wanted to replay this because this is just a universal truth, I think, about about life that we can really use to empower ourselves in our businesses and as entrepreneurs. If you embrace the fact that repetition of the things you are scared of most will definitely lessen that fear and empower you and strengthen your ability to try new things in the future. It can give you a lot more encouragement to try those things right now. And another reason I wanted to bring this clip back is that Jesse also shares his experience of going from the newbie on the plane, right, terrified, having never jumped out of a plane before, not knowing what he's doing, not jumping far enough the first time and hitting the plane on the way down. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff Um, to being one of the seasoned jumpers who's there looking at all the newbies on the plane who are terrified. And he's the one who is in a leadership position and has the power to set the tone for those new people. So he tells a great story. I'm not going to give it away, but he tells a great story of what of how he is able to really quell their fears. And it doesn't take that much to set the tone and help people who are really new to something, who are scared. It doesn't take that much to change their mindset or their state of being so that they can embrace this 
whatever new thing that they're doing. Um, In his case, it was jumping out of planes. But in our cases, it's really about how to step into that leadership position with your clients, how to step into that leadership position in your own business and realizing that your state of mind and how you show up in your business is really going to determine how all the forces around you, the people and the systems even, are going to fall into place because of how you show up as a leader. This is so core to how I look at helping clients get to the brand that they need in order to succeed. Because people don't just come to me to build them a cool brand or a nice brand or a brand that they want. They come to me to solve a real core problem. Usually that problem has something to do with not being seen, not standing out, not speaking to their ideal clients, not being connecting with their ideal clients and not presenting themselves in a premium way so that their ideal clients want want to and expect to pay them premium prices, right? So these are the, the problems that I'm usually solving. But stepping into a brand that does all of those things can take a lot of guts because it usually requires owning your voice, owning your niche, saying something that isn't going to please everybody. It's not always saying something controversial, although it very well might be. But even just saying something that is going to speak to one group of people and not everybody, that can take a lot of guts. I've coached a lot of people who get it in theory that it's valuable to niche down. But when it comes time to pick a niche, they don't want to do it. They're so scared to alienate potential clients. And I get that. If you've never had the experience of how saying something that's polarizing can benefit your business, if you've never had the experience of how speaking to a very niche set of target clients can benefit your business, make it easier to write your copy, make it easier to market. If you've never had that experience, then doing so might feel like a risk. Okay, so that's a lot of people that I talk to. What does that mean for me as the person who's trying to help them get what they ultimately want? It means that I need to create the environment for them to feel safe and secure to make those decisions. I need to be that leader and I can only be that leader if I have already done scary things like that. And I've done them many times and I've experienced the repetition and I've gotten over it, somewhat at least. And I can speak to them from experience and have empathy for where they are and also confidence in making these kinds of decisions to get them to move forward. There's a reason that Steve and I made our website and our brand, worst of all design, badass brands without the BS, you know, very in your face, because we wanted to show our potential clients how far they can go. And we never expect clients to go as far as we do. I've never gotten a client, I I don't know if I've ever tried, but I've never had a client name their company something as out there as worst of all design. Okay, and that's fine. That's good. I should be the most extreme because I'm the one leading the way. So in a similar vein, you need to have that kind of leadership confidence to lead your clients who are not there yet. 
So I'm going to play you this clip right now. I hope you enjoy it. The first five jumps that I had at airborne school, each was more dramatic than the last. And I, I just realized it, I mean, it was totally jumper error. I didn't know what I was doing. And so, <gasps> it, and I'll just say at the outset, it's amazing how much can go wrong and yet you're still more or less fine. But like the first time that I exited the plane, I got to the door and was like, what? <laughs> and hit the side of the plane on my exit. <gasps> the second time I jumped out and the jumper on the other side of the plane, you know, neither of us had jumped far enough out. And so her parachute began opening underneath me. And so I was basically on top of her parachute and it was collapsing around me until it finally fully opened and it like, you know, kind of snapped me off of it. But that was terrifying. I think the third jump is when I ended up in the hospital <laughs> because oh I landed, God. I landed in this you know, kind of a depression on the drop zone and hit my tailbone to an extent that I've never before replicated. And it was a nightmare. There was also some other, <laughs> some other aspect to that. I'll just say very quickly, you're not supposed to be wearing contact lenses when you jump. I may or may not have been, and they may or may not have popped out based on the impact of how hit how hard I hit the ground, in which oh my you God. Know, the, the result would have been if this happened, and I'm not representing that it did, but had it uh -huh. happened, I would have then been blind on the field and not been able to tell anyone because I'm not supposed to have been, haven't been wearing contacts. And then you're my not fourth, supposed to wear contacts. What are you supposed to wear? Glasses? Yep. Probably for the exact reason that I just described, all of which is hypothetical. Given right, that this of course, being you definitely. I've never known you to break any rules. <laughs> and then, let's see. On the fourth jump, you have combat equipment, right? You've got your rifle, and you've got this rucksack filled with, you know, equipment, and you're supposed to release it, right? You're supposed to drop it from you so it hits the ground first. It's on a string. It's there's some degree of control, but the point is that you're not supposed to just ride it into the ground, and I, after those three prior traumatic jumps, the last thing I was thinking about were the duties incumbent on me. And I just burned right into the ground with them. And the rifle, which was oh strapped my to my side, popped up and hit me in the head <gasps> on impact. And that, that sucked. <laughs> and then the last one, which was the worst one by far, these parachutes, which are called T-11 parachutes, the type of, of parachute that you jump with when you're in the conventional army community, they have these gigantic slits in the side. So, you know, kind of think in the origami structure if you've got a back panel and then four panels that come off of each square side. And so there are corner vents in the parachute. And they tell you in the, the you know, the rehearsal before each airborne operation, they tell you that if you're approaching a corner vent, you spread your arms, you spread your legs, you make yourself big and so that you don't slip through the corner vent. Well, this was a night jump and I couldn't really see. And I also was at that point just happy that my parachute had opened at that point. And I immediately collided with another jumper and slipped through a corner vent. <gasps> and what you then learn, as I learned, is that both of your parachutes have significant lift, right? Still lift capability. And so while I was freaking out and probably exacerbating the situation during the entire descent, I landed fine. No problem. I was, I survived. And it, it was actually probably a, inside the other person's. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Were Hardcore. they like, what the fuck? Jesse? 
they <laughs> oh, oh yeah. I think, I think both of us were, I mean, I would love, I wish there were like, you know, aud- at least audio evidence of our shrieks the entire way down. Oh, it was awesome. God. It was awesome. Oh. Definitely no noise discipline. If, if it had been an actual <laughs> operation, I'm if- sure we would have been picked out of the sky pretty quickly. Oh my uh, God. But that was my first five jumps. And that was, I mean, that was 50 jumps ago, you know, jumps in, ago. yeah. So I've jumped out 55 times and it's never been like that since you, you, you once you know what to expect, in fact, you find that it's one of the easiest things that you can do in the army. If you're willing to invest the time in waiting to jump, then, you know, all you have to do is just let your parachute open and have gravity continue its normal operation. And that's, that's about the extent of your engagement. The theory behind it is it's the fastest way to get large amounts of supplies and troops on a battlefield, but it's probably increasingly less practical in any modern sense, because there would just be, you know, you probably wouldn't be jumping into battle at, at best, you'd be jumping into support an area that was already cleared. And nowadays, I can't really imagine. I can't really imagine a practical application of it. But I'm sure there are some strategic planners somewhere who emphasize why we would need that capability in a last-ditch scenario. And what I will say, in terms of supporting the justification for airborne operations training, is that. I became a different person after airborne school. It introduced me to a fear complex that had never been triggered. And it, it started the process of having me, you know, engage it. Like when I jump out of a plane now, I almost miss the anxiety I used to feel. Every single time you obviously have a certain apprehension of like, oh man, I, this is gonna be crazy. But you also kind of in the back of your mind know that your parachute's gonna open and the landing is going to suck. It's going to be kind of uncomfortable, but that you'll largely be okay. There's injuries inherent to that as there are in any activity. But, you know, now that I know what I'm doing, it's, 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 it's really demonstrated to me the extent to which I have engaged a fear and, and basically beaten it. And I think the, the most immediate example of where this has had a true impact on me as a person was there was like a, a rope swing once over the lake that I'd never touched when I was a child. And it didn't even occur to me that it would be an obstacle when my second year in the army, I came home, went up to the lake, jumped on this rope swing. It was just no fear, you know? Wow. Yeah. And so I think that that, that, that type of training is critical for, for anyone in, especially in the army. It really, you know, it, it gives you techniques to, the very least be logically or intellectually aware that you can overcome the way you're feeling and that you kind of have to. Wow. That is incredible. So you, you can't access that fear, but obviously you were very fearful when you first started. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? By the, I, I presume if you look at some of the messages home, I, I thought I was saying goodbye to my family. I'm like the third or fourth jump. By that point, I was like identifying what of my belongings was going to go to whom. Whereas now I like, I, you know, there, I, I, I forget to even mention to someone that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be jumping that, that day or that week or whatnot. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like there's a lot of 
opportunity for it to go wrong in the beginning. Yeah, there are. And it does. It goes wrong. It goes wrong even for people who have, who have done it a, a hundred times, right? Yeah. I mean, it's still, it's still an inherently dangerous activity. I guess my point is that, and something I've, I've stressed to my mother uh, before, if you just look at the statistics, I'm more likely to be injured on my drive to work in the morning right. than I am in an airborne operation. And that's, that's, that's remarkable. I mean, across the United States military, at the very least the army, I think it's something like there are hundreds of thousands of jumps per year. And I think it's only like two or three deaths. I mean, you know, I, I don't have the numbers, but at least that's my impression of what I've heard before. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, I mean, it's a very different application and arguably a, a much more visceral and uh, probably more powerful application of something that oddly I talk about on this show like every episode <laughs> because the concept of facing a fear and then getting over it and then realizing later like, oh, I'm like literally not even realizing that that's scary anymore is so powerful and it makes it, it, it prepares you to do bigger things that probably weren't even on your radar before. And you're talking about something that, I mean, I can't even fathom the idea of jumping out of a plane. I'm like, not interested, not even going to pretend, don't want to do it. And don't feel scared. Don't feel like a scaredy cat either. Just don't, <laughs> like not interested. Well, there's a couple things that I'll just say really quickly because yeah. having listened to some of the, the podcasts, I'll tell you where it has a direct nexus to the themes of this show. And that is what I've just described to you is rote training. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have repetition and habit, you start to acclimate to the feeling of being scared and understanding how to adjust it. But there is so much of a role for the leader of the chalk. Chalk is the, you know, the, the line of, paratroopers that are going to jump out the door. So I'm a jump master. And when I've, when I've, you know, led an airborne op or served as what's called a safety, where I'm the one that they're handing the static line off to before they jump out, it is incredible how much control I have over their emotional state simply by smiling. So these are generally younger dudes. And every, you know, obviously they're afraid. And I was once just as terrified. And <clears throat> when you are with people who have a shared mission, it becomes so much easier to jump out of that, that door. And when you are with a leader or someone in a position of kind of authority or responsibility who encourages you with just a friendly reminder that it's going to be okay, it changes the entire tone of the mission. So if you've got a jump master who's freaking out, who's not stable, or who doesn't necessarily have a social predisposition towards niceties, then it's going to make the, it's oh, going to make the gosh. jump a little more fraught. But when I'm the safety and I'm walking up to each person as like, you know, the doors open and it's loud and everything's chaotic and I'm walking through and I'm making jokes to them or kind of smiling as I just check their, you know, equipment one more time. And then I tell them, hey, you know, look at me and I'm making kind of like a, even a, a, a wink every time they, they hand off their static line. I've seen the look of terror on, on, a, on a dude's face also kind of like break for a second with a smile. 
And I know that, that I've had jump masters like that that were critical in those early jumps after I'd gotten out of airborne school. And that was the only experience I had behind me. As soon as I got to the 82nd Airborne Division, where everyone jumps, everyone's much more or less acclimated to it. All of a sudden, that, that tenor of calm changed the experience for me. And so, you know, when you are put in a position of leadership, one thing I will take away from it is an awareness of like how much the environment is impacting, you know, the people with whom I'm working. And so I can be a counterbalance to any stresses that exist there, or I can exacerbate them. That's just the reality of, you know, being in a position of influence, tone, tenor, personality, especially when it comes to politics. I think that's, that's what we need in people. Now, I'm not saying that I would be potentially good at that in all contexts. I'm as neurotic and flamboyant and um, excitable as anyone. But I will say that there is a sense of, you know, when you've got someone who is stable and calm and able to, to kind of create that environment, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's critical. And I, I won't comment too much on it right now, but I will just say you can, you can tell where you have leaders in civilian society who don't try to create a general calm. Society responds accordingly. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the higher up that influence, probably the more important it is to just be able to sincerely smile, you know? Mm-hmm. I can imagine you being really good at that. that sounds, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. as long, as I, mean, as, long as, I, as long as I don't lose my temper, right? I mean, one of the things that the Army, the Army, <laughs> the Army has offered me is a way of diluting myself into my own sense of status. And so you know, one of the things you have to keep, keep in mind is that because I'm extended the benefit of rank, you can't abuse it, right? Like it's only a fiction that, that, you know, someone is higher up. That's all the hierarchical system in the army is designed to, to make more expedient the transmission of directives. But if you start kidding yourself as to the fact that my rank means I'm like smarter than other people, Mm-hmm. you know, you can be a dick. And there have been definitely times where fortunately right now I've got a paralegal that I, I totally admire. I mean, just a brilliant guy. And I've deputized him with informing me when I'm just being a dick. Uh-huh. <laughs> and does he? All the time. Oh my God. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there, there's, you know, there's like, in, in, you know, you need someone that you trust who can check you on it. Because <clears throat> sometimes, yeah. sometimes things have to be done a certain way, and sometimes they have to be done right now. My general tendency is to think that it has to be done my way at this exact moment all the time. And the mm-hmm. reality is that almost never is the case. Mm-hmm. And you also have racked up all the accolades, right? I briefly remember you going around being like, I think I'm going to try to get that one and this one. And that's why you started jumping in the first place. I thought. Yes. I've, I, so the funny thing is, and this just goes to show, though, the, the limitations of ego. I tried to get every single accolade you could get in the Army. I just, I had so much fun. You know, there was air assault, jump master school, obviously was airborne. I did all of these things. And there was only one that really, in my view, mattered, and that was ranger school. And I injured myself during my 
my right. endeavor. And so I do not have a ranger tab. And the funny thing about having invested so much significance in that tab is that when I look at my uniform and given my own kind of personality predisposition, I don't see any of what I've achieved. I only see the missing ranger tab. <laughs> oh no. You were, yeah, you were laid up for like, what, eight months? God, I was only laid up for like two months, but then kind of in rehab, it, it, it was probably about eight months. And then, it, you know, it was yeah. very important to me because I'm such a self-righteous piece of shit that I'd be able to max our army physical fitness test. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so to get back to that, you know, took yeah. another several months and until I could do it, I obviously, you know, self-flagellated and felt felt pretty bad about who I was. Yeah. What um, is Ranger? What does Ranger mean? Honestly, it is just the, it's the world's best leadership school. It's simply a, it's a course that subjects you to really harsh conditions, many of which are self-imposed in, in terms of, you know, it's artificial starvation, it's artificial sleep deprivation, which is to say that you have Ranger instructors who don't feed you and make sure that you're getting up to, you know, get after it. And so people get very little sleep, they get very little food. And in that, you know, with those stressors, they're doing, you know, mock engagements of the enemy, you know, and, and, and on some level, it's, it's all based on what we just talked about in terms of airborne operational training, right? You, you are, you're, it's, it's habit, it's exposing you to what you're going to see in the battlefield so that you're not, you know, right you're able to, to, to deal with a, a hugely stressful situation. And, and it, and I think, you know, my experience, the limited like three weeks that I, that I had in, in, in that, you know, preparatory um, training were the best three weeks of my life. I mean, I loved being a part of that, that team mission. And I loved the opportunity that I had to lead it, you know, they, they will stress that the important thing is not necessarily the merits of your decision so much as your capability of making a decision. And you have to rely on the advice of your, your teammates, you know, and, and take their inputs so that you can make the best decision possible. But at the end of the day, when a decision has to be made, you need to make it. And that's what, you know, that's what Ranger School does. And I, I'm also particularly bummed because I had timed it such that I would have been with the first class of females to go through the, the Ranger School course, which I always thought was, you know, I thought that was going to be historic. And it, it's proven to be, but wow. that wasn't in the car. And I never had an opportunity to, 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 you know, give it a second shot. And, and now I think the reality is, I just don't have it in me, which is a hard thing to admit, but I, I think that's the truth that I just, it's intimidating the prospect of how much of a train up I, I personally would require the fact that I'm now 38 and even at 32, when I tried, I was, I mean, old, older by far from the vast really? majority. Yeah. Really? Wow. Wait. And, and I mean, I, I get the concept of putting yourself to acclimate to this environment and then having to, I assume you're, you're doing missions. So you're doing a lot of physical activity with no sleep and no food. And so that if that ever happens, but you were never, you were most likely never going to be in that situation, but they still, you can choose to 
to like take these co- like courses? What like programs? Yeah. yeah, in part in part because at the end of the day, it's a leadership school. Gotcha. It was the most instructive three weeks of my life. I will also point out that you know I'm a judge advocate, so my it's a desk job, and. I loved every single fucking day when they would, you know, wake us up after two hours of sleep. I was ready to fucking go. And, and I also will point out that, you know, there was a give and take about different skill sets and aptitudes. I had never really gotten good at disassembling a weapon and cleaning it. That shit was new to me. It was, that's not my, my normal routine in the army, but my, you know, the people on my, on my team found that to be so funny and I was able to assist them in other things that, you know, they like looked after me, you know, it was amazing to see the way in which different skill sets complemented one another in advancing a mission. And, you know, like my ingenuity at one point was having everyone take their, the clothes, for example, that they have in our rucksack and tape it all up when they weren't using it. So that when we had to do these mandatory layouts, which gave the ranger instructors an opportunity to say, Hey, you guys are all jacked up. You're not, you know, uh, dress, right dress, which is everyone's the same by taking tape and making it uniform. We could save so much time by dumping out the rucksack immediately lining everything up in an identical fashion from person to person. And, you know, that means that you get an extra 10 minutes of sleep, which is crucial. So people loved that, you know, kind of, you know, my little tactic there that they didn't mind that I could barely fire, you know, an M240 Bravo or didn't know what I was doing in any other, you know, weapon systems context. Couldn't load a radio, all that shit. Weren't you learning that stuff? Absolutely not. Those are not, you know, you'll learn an M4, which is a, a rifle, kind of like the, the, the military grade version of what you might know as an AR-15. Mm-hmm. But, you know, beyond your pistol and your rifle, no, I'm not taught any of that stuff. I'm not a gunner. I'm not a, a, an 11 oh. Bravo, which is infantry. So I don't learn the vast majority of, of weapon systems that are, are really what you're going to see on a, on a battlefield. Right. But you have, you're walking around with a pistol. Yeah, I mean, I understand my pistol enough, but when I, you know, I'm talking about machine guns, oh. like there's a 249 or two, yeah, those things, right. I don't know anything about a grenade launcher. I don't know anything about this, what's called a Claymore mine system. I don't, I don't okay. know that stuff. In and fact, those guys did. And those guys did. And so there was kind of a give and take. What you realize is your fire team, your squad is operating as a single organism. And that was what was so magic about it. We were, we were moving through the woods when I was the squad leader and I was like looking to my left and right. I don't know anything about the army to the extent that I've even given you proper vocab is itself an achievement because so much of the army is still fucking a mystery to, to me. But being in the woods, advancing slowly you know, towards our objective I'm just, I was looking around and just watching all of these guys playing their designated roles and we're moving as like a single organism. And my role as the squad leader in that Mm -hmm. particular lane, you know, that's just my role to be the squad leader. I'm going to swap out with someone else who's then going to be the squad leader the next time. We're, we're each, we're each playing a role. There isn't like a, it's hard to explain. The hierarchy is the role. 
Uh-huh. And, that, and that's kind of what I mean before. Don't, don't mistake your rank for talent. You know, you're wearing a rank because you have a job to do. And this is an easier way of transmitting directions on down to the people that are going to execute at the lowest level. But, you know, it's just a, it's right. just a, a, a job. It's a role. Well, but, but you got those roles and you were in those ranks because you had done things to acquire information that made that prepared you to be in that role that's exactly so, right not, but I'll, I'll give i'll give you the application that's going to make the most sense to you yeah. when you have a ceo who's making 490 times more per year than the lowest level employee that is a misapprehension of the role of an organization because that person is not 490 times better they just happen to be best equipped to play right. a slightly different decisional role. And people joke about this all the time, that the army is the most socialist organization designed to support a capitalist structure. But what I would say is I can't wait to get out of the army and take what I've learned there about how to organize men and women and, and lead them and all of that stuff and apply it into the world of business. Because that's, that's who I want to be. Those are my soldiers. That's my unit. Instead of the people with whom I work, that's my unit. We're all together as a fire team moving towards an objective. And it just, I never conceived of business like that. And now being in the army, you know, I, well, I've been, you know, appro appropriately brainwashed. So. You've been training for this moment. You're, you're so well positioned to build, start and build or take over businesses because of all yeah. of this. You're, you've been doing really intense personal growth work this entire time. I don't really think of the army as being like that, but and it might not be for everybody as much. I know you really take that. You really took it by the reins and tried to squeeze all the value out of it that you could. Yeah, I'll put it this way. I know so much what I want to do with it that I don't even know whether or not I'm flexible enough to put it into just any given activity. I'll tell you what I, what I want to do with it. You know, I, I invested years building this credentialed platform of the type of person I would want to follow. And it was, you could look at it cynically, or you could look at it as almost, you know, my ideal. This is the, t the person that I would want to follow. And that, that person is first and foremost, really funny. And I think I've checked that box. And then I wanted to follow someone who, if they were going to be in whether it was business or whether it was in politics, someone who knew the law and had an understanding of when and how to abide by it and when to look for the opportunities that a loophole provides, understood business and understood kind of the legacy of service. It, Pete Buttigieg said this thing that really resonated with me, which was, yeah, like I joined the military because I felt that you should join the military if you're going to be involved in politics. For me, that was his thing. That, mm -hmm. that totally resonated with me, right? Like, oh, yeah. When he I, said that, I thought of you. It's not a cynical ploy. Like, I, I did the things that I thought were important to someone who was going to be in a position of influence, whether it's leading a company or whether it's leading a municipality. And so law degree, business degree, government bachelors, and, and military service, I did those specifically because I wanted to be able to say that I had done those if I was going to be stepping into the ring and trying to get myself, you know, positioned in, in leading an organization or a municipality. And that's what I wanted to do, you know, whether it ends up being in the business world in Albany or whether it ends up being in the political environment, 
I come from the capital of New York State and kind of Albany County, right outside the city. And I have always been enamored by the prospect of making that the place that I take responsibility for bettering. And that's why I've done this. That's why there's been this kind of almost deliberate 20-year plod towards making sure I was the type of of, of person that I would respect, that I, 18-year-old Jesse, would want to cast a vote for or would listen to if they directed me to do something in you know, commercial pursuit of an objective. I hope you enjoyed that clip from episode 20 with Captain Jesse Summer and that you've enjoyed this series so far. I had a lot of fun putting it together. And on that note, I have a little special request and offer to you, my favorite listeners. I want to start adding a little Q&A series to this show. So here's what I want you to do. If you have a question that you would like me to visit on the show, please go write me a review on Apple Podcasts and post your question in the review. And each week I will pick one question to answer. And if I pick yours, I will invite you to book a 15 minute call with me where we can chat about your brand and your business and I can give you some lightning private coaching. How does that sound? Pretty awesome, right? All right. So write a review with your question and hopefully we can chat soon. And of course, if you know other entrepreneurs who could benefit from hanging out with us, please share this podcast with them. And don't forget to click subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you never miss an episode of Show Your Business Who's Boss. Show Your Business Who's Boss is produced by Yellow House Media. Production coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode is edited by Marty Seafelt. Creative direction by Steve Wastervall. Our theme music is Glass Prisms by Western Runners. 